Brothers and sisters, normally we remain standing for the reading of God's word, but this morning we have a quite long passage, so you may take your seats. We're turning to 1 Samuel 14 this morning, and uh, we'll read that in preparation for Roger coming to lead us in the exposition of God's word. So 1 Samuel 14, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come let us go over to the and garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was, was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there, then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. 
Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved them that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ejelon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? Is this guilt in me or in Jonathan my son? O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. 
and Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went out from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, instruct the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Melchashua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger Michael, and the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimahaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There were hard fightings against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit that we may hear your word this morning, that we may be comforted and challenged, but even more that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith as we respond to your faithfulness. Hear us for the sake of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. morning. Um, Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, um, there are a few things uh, that we human beings cannot live without. Uh, I'm not talking about food or shelter, which are very necessary for life. I'm talking about something a little deeper, uh, love, meaning, uh, justice, Beauty. You know, there are things that you and I cannot live without. Uh, and there's one thing, one other thing, that you and I can't live without. That is hope. You and I cannot live without hope because we're made to hope. And no movie demonstrated this better than the famous movie Shawshank Redemption. As you remember, uh, uh, Andy Dufresne, uh, portrayed by Tim Robbins, was wrong- wrongfully accused and incarcerated for the murder of his wife and um, her lover. And he was delivered to Shawshank uh, prison. And obviously, as you remember, uh, that he endured so much hardship, so much brutality in the prison, as you can imagine. 
And as you, as you go along in the movie, you, you wonder, how is this guy going to make it out? Where is this movie going to go? And then he meets a guy na nicknamed Red, uh, portrayed by Morgan Freeman, who has been in prison for a while. He has to figure out the system in the prison where he can smuggle things in. You know, he, he's pretty comfortable in the prison. But when he met Andy, Andy seems different to him. Andy is quiet, but thoughtful. Andy doesn't seem to be giving up even when things are hard. So it's really confusing to Red. And one time, as you might remember this scene when they were at lunch, and um, Andy was talking to uh, Red about you know, hope and how you persevere. And, and Red says, hope is a dangerous thing. It can kill a man. He says, don't hope. There's, if you hope, especially in this circumstance, you can be here for decades. Hope is no use to you. Don't hope. Of course, you know Andy didn't take up that advice. He actually hoped even stronger, and he used a little, little hammer to carve out a tunnel to escape prison. And after uh, Red has been released on parole, uh, Andy left him, him a letter. Uh, you might remember towards the end of the movie, uh, Red went to a, a place in the uh, in a wall and took out the letter. And in the letter. Uh, of course, uh, Andy provides some money for him to get to where Andy was, but he says something very profound in answer to what Red said earlier about hope. He says that, remember, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And, and this is what I'm trying to say, is that you and I cannot live without hope. Andy cannot live without hope. You and I can live without hope. So then where do we find our hope? How do we find our hope? And this passage here, this long passage we just read, actually gives us the Christian hope, a very unique, solid hope. So what's our hope? What is the hope that we, we see we learn in this passage? We learn that our hope, our ultimate hope, lies in God's unlikely deliverance through an unexpected king. Our hope, your hope, my hope, ultimately lies with God's unlikely deliverance through an unexpected king. So let's go through this passage with three questions in mind. The first one, oh, three questions. Why the king? Who is the king? And where is the king? And we'll see how that ties into how we can have hope in this world and beyond. So number one, why, is, why the king? Uh, if you, uh, if you remember, we just read... Uh, there are actually two needs facing the people of Israelites in this passage. One is immediate, and the other one is spiritual, or a deeper need. The, the immediate need is pretty obvious. They were literally faced with their enemies running in front of them. They're, uh, they're in danger. And if you read back uh, to chapter 13 just a little bit, you, you see that actually the Philistines did something that compromised the Israelites' uh, military power. They took away all the weapons from them. There's only two swords in, the, in all Israel, and Saul had one and Jonathan had one. All the people with Saul did not have any weapons. Imagine, 600 people going to battle against the whole army with no weapons. I mean, in today's world, it would be ridiculous. Back then, still, um, I mean, <laughs> with no weapons against the whole army that really hates you. And that's where immediate need, their need is to be delivered from this more powerful army than them to have security, to have safety from threats. And of course, as you know, they've been faced with threats all their lives. And so 
that's their need. Their most immediate need is to be safe, to not have to fight uh, their enemies without weapons, to have a secure border, to have a secure home. But there's something deeper, though, that's actually true of them, and it's true of you and I uh, in our deeper part of our humanity, which is a spiritual need. What, what, do, you, we'll see, what do you mean spiritual need? Uh, you remember uh, back in chapter 8, um, they, uh, the people of Israel asked for a king, and Samuel was quite furious about it. He, you know, he said, why are you guys rejecting me? Why are you asking? For, I'm, I'm the judge here. And remember what God told Samuel. He says, go along with the request because they, didn't reje- they did not reject you. They were rejecting me as their God, as their king. And that is actually true of all of us. Um, that our, our most vital need, our deepest need, your deepest need, my deepest need, is to have God as our king. And God is saying to Samuel and to the people of Israel, especially through Saul, that you're not going to have that relationship if you ask a king like any other king of the nations. Your most important need is a vital relationship with me. And the Bible says this um, with, of course, a count of Genesis 1 to 3. As you know, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, all of humanity rebelled against God with them. And that had created a gap in our relationship with God, so that even though we need that relationship, even though we need God, we need God desperately, but we can get back with God by our own works. We, we cannot bridge that gap. That gap was too far, too vast for any human, for any human work to bridge it. And therefore, we need God to be our king, and we can't get it. And, but someone might say, well, no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't see a need for God. I, I'm pretty self-sufficient in myself. I can deal with life just as well. Uh, in a day-to-day of life, I don't see the need for God or for any king. I'm, we live in democracy. Come on, a king. We, we don't live in that country anymore. <laughs> we, we don't need a king. And, but actually, though, um, the total freedom from any kind of rule is kind of illusion, I want to say. There's a famous speech that's been quoted over and over. You might have heard this by David Foster Wallace, the, the novelist. Uh, he gave a commencement speech in Kenyon College in 2005. I think he called This is Water. And in it, he says something that's really true. He basically says that there's not, nothing, no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as not submitting to an authority. He, he says, in a day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's, no, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only, choice we, uh, the only choice we get is what to worship. But he says, here's the catch. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, do you hear him? He says, we all worship something. We all are under some kind of authority. But all authority that you put your hope in in this world will eat you alive. Here's what he means. This is the mo- more famous maybe part. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you have real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never for you have had enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you always feel ugly. 
and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myth, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front, up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, uh, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You will, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious, they are default settings. They are default settings of the human heart. We all worship something, we are all under some kind of authority. And the Foster Wallace, if you're not a Christian, says anything else you worship, anything you put your, under your authority will eat you alive. It will it literally eat you alive before death takes you. So where, where, where do we go from here? We need our worship with God, we need to worship God. We need to be ruled by God, the king, but we worship other things. If you feel the pinch of this, you feel just a little bit uncomfortable, let's keep going, and there is hope. There is hope from this passage. So we have said that, um, why the king? Why, why we need king number one is because the people had an immediate need to be delivered from their enemies who have more weapons than they do, who have more manpower than they do, but there's a deeper, more spiritual need, which is vital relationship, a living, loving relationship with God that they desperately need to get back to. And those are their needs, those are our needs. And so then, who is the king? If we need a king, if we need, need to be ruled by someone, who is the king? Uh, if you look uh, in the beginning of the passage, uh, it's surprising the first name that appears in the passage was not Saul, was, was Jonathan. It says, on, the day, on one, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, and it goes on and says, Jonathan planned to attack the Philistines by himself and with, uh, with his armor bearer, uh, just two of them, two people, against the whole army with one sword against the whole army. And so in this passage throughout, you might have picked up on this as Mark was reading, that there's a contrast between Jonathan and Saul throughout the passage. Uh, there's a deliberate uh, kind of narrative contrast between them and that the, the, the narrator or the writer is saying that the real king here is not Saul, is not the one who is anointed king. The real king here is actually Jonathan. Jonathan acts more like a king than Saul does. And if you remember, one of the things that really puts an irony to this is Saul was sitting at a pomegranate cave. Uh, you remember that part? What, what is that about? Why is he in a pomegranate cave? So a uh, commentator will say that that's actually a um, setting for kings when they're away from the capital. And they set up a holy site or a sacred place where they can hold court with their officials, uh, sometimes with their army in this case, and with the priests. So they have all the officials, the people with them, and they're sitting in a place of safety, of course, so that he can direct the army where to go. And as, as you know, uh, they didn't go anywhere because he didn't want to go anywhere. But that's where he, he was. He was in the safety of a uh, protected, sacred place, while you have Jonathan, his armor barrier, climbing up a hill, a, a, a big cliff, really, to try to get to their enemy. So the, the contrast is very stark. And in this way, and in many ways, this is how God ex del delivers his people and deliver you in un unexpected ways uh, through an unexpected king in, um, in Jonathan. But this is a pattern in the Bible, though, if you think about it. 
it's always true. It's it's you know it's Leah, not Rachel. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's it's the weak. The you know it's Ruth, uh, not you know anybody. So it's always those who you don't expect. It's always those who are unlikely that God uses to bring deliverance and salvation to his people. And why is that? Why does, that, why does that God do this all the time? Why does God do this with Jonathan, not Saul? Why does God do it with the weak, the Apostle Paul, who was persecutor of the church? Why does God do this? It's because salvation is by grace, not by anything we can do. And if we are saved by anything we can do, then God can use the powerful, those who have means, those who have resources, and we can do it on our, on our own. But no, Salvation is by grace and by God's power. As Jonathan said here, God can deliver with many or with few. He can deliver with a thousand people or two people or one person. He can, he can deliver by his power, by his grace, not by our power. And that's why uh, even in the episode, episode of Gideon, you remember God kept sending people back. Say, you, you got too many people with you. What do you mean you got too many people with me? I'm going. But God says salvation is by grace. It's not by what you can do. And here's something, if you're a Christian, uh, simply is that does God's grace amaze you on a day-to-day basis? And we all know justification by grace alone, by faith alone. We know the doctrine. But does that amaze you on an existential level? I mean, every day, do you wake up and say, me, I mean, saved by God? I mean, out of all the people, me, how can I, of all people, be saved? How amazing is God's grace? Does that... Does that grace motivate you and empower you to live life without insecurity, without fear of a future? Is that where you draw your power, your hope, uh, your security, your identity from? And I, would, I just want to also speak a, a word to our non-Christian friends uh, that uh, this is where Christianity is unique from other religions. There's a lot of overlap um, between the ethical teachings of Christianity and other religions, as you know, a lot of things are the same. You know, other, honor your father and mother, thou shalt not murder. And those other things are pretty common, actually, across a lot of religions. But there's only one thing that sets Christianity apart, which is salvation by grace. Salvation by grace alone. You do not save yourself. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, you or anybody can do to save yourselves. And... This is also, this also means that everybody, everybody, you know, like we talked about David Foster Wallace's worship, everybody's actually after salvation in some form, whether you're saved by your works or you're saved by someone else's work, but we're all trying to be saved. And the Bible says, if you, if you recognize that, if you recognize salvation by grace is unique about Christianity, but everybody's actually trying to save themselves, there's something really tiring about saving yourself, though. Uh, the metaphor come to mind is uh, fig leaves. You remember when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and when God showed up, they started to make fig leaves to cover themselves. Of course, you can't really cover yourself with fig leaves. I mean, uh, you know, that's really, really poor attempt of covering your shame. And really, um, the Bible says any other form of salvation are fig leaves. Anything you can do and I can do to try to really make ourselves feel okay are fig leaves. They're not going to cut it. Here's how, uh, you know, well, well, Jim, Jim Carrey agrees. Um, here's what he says. Uh, he gave a short introduction speech at Golden Globes uh, one year, and he was presenting the award, but of course in his typical humorous uh, fashion, he said this. It's really interesting. He says, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, 
You know, when I'm going to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shot eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, <laughs> because then I will be enough. It will finally be true, and I could stop this this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Jim Carrey, with all the accolades in the world, says salvation through your achievement or anything else is not going to cut. It's not going to get you there. This terrible search you're on is a sign that you are after salvation. It's a sign that you actually need salvation by grace alone. You cannot save yourself. You're going to dream about another golden globe. You're going to dream about another house, another car, another promotion. You're never going to get enough. It's never going to be enough. People who ever, ever made it that far always says it's never enough. It's never fulfilled them. It made, if anything, made them worse people than they were before. And so, salvation by grace. And then let us just look a little further before we go our, to our third point, to who Jonathan is, what he, what he is like as a king. You know, we say Jonathan is a king. And God does this because salvation is by grace. But what's Jonathan like? Well, you can, you can see pretty clearly he's both courageous and wise. Of course he's courageous. Come on, one sword with one other person climbing up a whole cliff to go fight a whole army? I mean, you see out of his mind, I mean, does he really expect this going to work? And you think, don't, don't you need to talk to these people here? They don't have weapons, but there are 600 of them. You, know, you can go talk to them before you go. Why, why are you? So he's very courageous, but he's also wise, so he's not foolish. As you, as you see, uh, as he was going, he told his armor bearer, hey, look, let's go. But if we go up, but, but, but once we get there, if they tell us to come up, we'll go. That's because God has given them into our hands as a sign. But if, if, we go, if we went up there, there's something different. Let's just not. So he actually was very courageous. He goes. He just goes. He knows God's faithful. But as he goes, he trusts God will actually give him guidance, give him advice. He leaves room for God's wisdom to guide him. So he's not saying, I'm just going to go. I'm the most courageous person in Israel. See what I can do. Of course, he can do very little by himself. But he says, I'm going to go. I, I'm going to do the next right thing. I'm going to be faithful. But I'm also going to leave room for God to actually give me what I, uh, get, tell me what I need to do next. And this is really a kind of practical thing. Uh, question for you. How, how do you know God's calling for you? How do you know, how do you discern God's calling for your life? How do you know what God's calling you to do next? Uh, if you're in a season of transition, if you are thinking about future, how can you know uh, uh, what you want to do next is what God calls you. One way to do it is just uh, actually pray and try to discern God's call. And th there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes God does give us uh, guidance through that, give you a clear direction. But very often and more often than not, God actually gives you guidance as you obey him, as you do the next right thing, as you do the next thing you know you need to do. Being faithful in your, in your everyday, take the next step. And know, okay, I need to do this, I need to do that. And God, at one t uh, on the one hand, is preparing you to be kind of the kind of person, actually, through that, that can, that can take the next call. But also, sometimes God really is calling us to trust him and to just do the next right thing, the next right thing without clarity. Jonathan didn't have any clarity whether he will win. He just knew that he had, he had to go. Saul wasn't going to go, so he had to go. So he, he goes. But 
he leaves room for, for God. He leaves room for God's guidance. And that's very often how God actually guides us, is as you go, as while you're doing the next right thing, while discerning his voice, while leaving room for his wisdom, so he, so he can work through you. So point one was said, why the king? Why the king? Because uh, the people have an immediate need of deliverance from their enemies. And the people, and you and I have a deeper spiritual need to be in right, vital relationship with God. So in the king, and who's the king? Excuse me. Surprisingly, Jonathan, now Saul, Jonathan who demonstrates salvation by grace. Jonathan who is both courageous and wise, who goes on behalf of his people. And then lastly, our last point is, where is the king? And you say, where is the king? He's right here. But, um, but so there, there are actually two places you find the king. One you expect, one you don't. Uh, the place you would expect, of course, is uh, on the battlefield. That's what Saul should have done, uh, as you know. Instead of sitting back in the pomegranate cave in the safety of his army, he should have gone into the battle on behalf of his people, whether or not they have any weapons, whether or not they have any prospect of victory. He should have gone as a king because that is part of what kings do. They do many other things, but part of it is to bring, safe, bring peace and safety and deliverance to their people. Um, so where's the king? You find Jonathan going up to battle. You find Jonathan in the heat of battle. You find Jonathan in his armor barrier killing 20 people on their own. He's in the battle. He's where Saul's supposed to be. But there's another place a king was that you don't expect a king to be. Is Jonathan was on trial. The king was on trial. As you remember this kind of perplexing, confusing uh, account at the end of the passage where Saul made a vow, says no one can eat any food until we win. I mean, you have an army with 600 people with no weapon, and now they don't have any food. They're starved to death, and you, you expect them to win. Anyway, um, so Saul made this rash vow and says, no one eat food, and then Jonathan goes to the battle, didn't know the vow, and he actually ate some honey and really helped them and helped the people. And uh, the people pounced on the spoil, ate it with the blood, which is a breaking a um, Old Testament law. Uh, you, you cannot eat flesh with blood in the Old Testament. So it comes back to Saul, and Saul, the only time, uh, oh, so remember how Saul found out about it. He found out about it is because God wasn't answering his prayers. Do you notice that? He, he asked the priest to inquire of the Lord, and nothing happened. And Saul says, wait a minute, something's wrong. God's not answering me. What, why is that? Somebody has broken a vow. Somebody has done something wrong. I need to fund somebody. So then he put Jonathan on trial and says, Jonathan, you know, taking by loss, says, Jonathan, you must die so that I can have prayer answered by God. Do you, you picking up something? <laughs> Jonathan and Saul are actually kind of representing two ways of approaching God in some ways. One way is you go to God, get blessing. Another way is you go to God, just get God. Saul, the reason why he was so frustrated, so desperate when things don't go right is because that's what he was after. He was not after God. He was after what God can give him. So when things go wrong, he immediately says, no, I need to fix this so I can somehow get back into favor with God. I need to engineer in my life. I need to build altars. I need to do all these things. I need to be whatever it takes to get those blessings. And God to him is a means to an end. But to Jonathan, God is an end in himself. Jonathan says, I will go. It doesn't matter what happens. You can deliver us with many, with a few. I trust you. 
And this is really just two ways of approaching God. How do, you, how do you come to God? Of course, our motivation is never pure. But how do you come to, do you come to God expecting blessing? And one of the ways you can see it is when things go wrong. You know, when, when that thing you really wanted didn't come, you say, God, how can you do this? How can you do this to me? I deserve this. Well, you wouldn't say that out loud, but you know, is that how your, how your heart operates? It's, God, how can you do this? How can you possibly do this to me? And then you think about ways to get back to favor with God. Oh, now I'm really good. Now God will bless me. Is that another way of salvation by works? That's really you saying, well, I can save myself. I can make some, myself good enough so that God will finally bless me. And if he doesn't, then something's wrong. I need to fix it. No, it's, no that's not how it works. Is it? you, you go to God, get God, and all the blessings come or whether they come or not, it's up to God. You know, aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Aim, aim at God, you get blessings. Aim at blessing, you get neither. So that's the principle that runs throughout the Bible and runs through the life of Jonathan and Saul. So here, let me conclude like this. We, we say, why the king? Why the king? Because people need to be delivered from their enemies, but you and I need a vital relationship with God. And Jonathan is more like the king than Saul, who is wise and courageous, who fights on people's behalf, but also stand on trial when he's innocent. And you find him in the battle and, and on trial. But think with me for a second. If you were talking to somebody who was reading First Samuel for the first time back then, how would you bring hope to her? Here's what I mean. Uh, you remember the book First Samuel? Uh, the book of Samuel was written uh, during the time of the divided kingdom after the time of uh, Solomon. Therefore, the people who were reading the uh, First Samuel would have known th uh, this, but also they've known David and Solomon, and neither one of them had really helped them. They still had enemies. If anything, they had more enemies. The, the original superpowers were surrounding them, and pretty soon they, they would be taken into exile. So the, so the person was reading, and she says to you, on this side of the cross, you say, How, can I have any hope? I mean, this episode is great, uplifting. Jonathan won, but... He died, and David won, and he died, and Solomon, he died. Now I'm reading this account, so is there hope? Is, what's the point? What's the point of this? Is there really hope for me? Is there hope for you, for me? Is there hope for anybody who's just tirelessly trying to achieve their salvation? Is there hope? And, and I think you'll say something like this to her. you say, yes, there is hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for people like Jim Carrey. There's hope for you and me. Here's where hope lies. Your, your my hope lies in a king. A and, and very unexpected king who came from backwaters of a small village years later who fought a battle, not on a battlefield with humans, but he fought the battle on a cross when he was dying against the spiritual forces that separate you and I from God. He says, I will stand in the gap between you and God, because that's what you most need. And I will bridge that gap. And that salvation, that deliverance is by grace alone. You don't have to do anything to be saved. All you have to do is to look to Christ and say, you are my king. And that you are the wise, courageous king who did not only teach us how to live, but live the life we should have lived. Who did not just teach us about God, but died to bring us to God. And that's the king you and I need. And that's where you can rest. You don't have to do anything. Because now he's done everything for you. You need to put your faith in him. 
and know that the ultimate king, Jonathan Points, has already won for you. And you go to him to get him, not to get blessing, to get Christ every day to get him more. And, you know, to people who are really just uh, tired, you know, remember that him, cast your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's where your hope is. That's where my hope is. And hold on to Christ and hold on to hope. Let's pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jonathan, his heroic deliverance of people, but we know that he points to a greater Jonathan who died and rose for us. Help us draw our hope from that, from your grace in Christ, so that we may be able to face life, also face death, with hope, with endurance, in Jesus' name. Amen.